Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello. Happy fall. Feels like fall finally, doesn't it? We were at a wedding yesterday, and uh, I almost didn't wear a blazer, and I did not regret it for one moment wearing it, because it is getting chilly. And it's that time of year, and uh, as we move into the fall, it's funny, because I've been studying and reading this book. Um, it's called the, the Fifth Gospel of Jesus, and, it, and what it talks about is the, the scenery and the seasons in the Middle East and Israel where all of, a lot of this was taking place. And uh, it was so unique to like just study the different seasons and how, you know, I don't know about you, I read the Bible and I just like picture the same scene the whole time. Like, you know, you forget there's seasons and there's time for different things. And when Jesus would talk about parables or specific things, there very well could be those things. And like, he's talking about farming, right? And there could be crops behind them growing, right? And um, so it, had, it gave me a greater appreciation for fall and knowing that, um, you know, that this life that, that Jesus talks about in Matthew has these different seasons and things going on. So uh, if, you've, if you haven't been with us, this is your first week, or you've been with us a little bit, but you've really been sleeping when I talk, we are in Matthew, and uh, we've been going through every single verse in that gospel, this, that account of Jesus, and uh, we're continuing to go through it. We're in Matthew 9. Now, this is uh, starting to get into, as you can see uh, behind me, you know, we're in part three of what would be seven parts of how Matthew lays this out. This is uh, a part where he's focusing on this idea of a kingdom, what Jesus is bringing on earth, that, that we are a part of his kingdom, and that in that, that we get to see the reality of what this kingdom looks like on earth, because the hope, the future that we hold as Christians is that this kingdom will come to full fruition, it will make all things new, and that the things that Jesus does on earth will be forever in the kingdom that we get to be a part of. And so it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to see it happen, and so that's what Jesus does. And last week we talked about, honestly, something that I think we, we neglect a lot, and this idea of spiritual oppression, and how a lot of us, I think, uh, have seasons or have had a long life of spiritual oppression in different ways. And uh, so as Jesus embarks on this mission, right, uh, he sets this fire under his followers' feet and, uh, and, and, and gets them excited about this kingdom coming. And, and the, the second they go out to do some stuff, there's a storm that almost kills them, and then there's two demon-possessed men coming out of a cemetery that couldn't be held down by chains coming at them. And uh, you read the story, and Jesus calms the storm with a word, just like Yahweh in the Old Testament, parting the seas and controlling nature. And then uh, these two demon-possessed men, he just drives out all these demons that were in them, and this massive herd of pigs, they go into this herd of pigs, and they they all die. And then the town doesn't get very very excited about that because they just lost their whole uh, flock, group of pigs. I don't know what that, the term would be. Pig eye, poor old pigs. And uh, they lost them all, and they tell him to leave, which is fascinating. I could not imagine a church where Jesus would come up here and start doing some stuff, and we're like, hey, you're kind of making us uncomfortable. Could you please leave? Uh, but but he, he honors that. He does. He leaves. He actually heads back, and that's where we're at in verse 1. If you're looking, chapter 9, it says, after getting into the boat, he crossed to the other side, and he came back to his own town, Capernaum. Uh, and just then, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. 
Now, we remember, if we remember like last week or even a couple weeks ago, Jesus had just told the Sermon on the Mount. He had drawn essentially everyone from Capernaum and the surrounding area to come hear his teachings. And we don't realize this, but Capernaum was not a very big city at this time. Most historians, they argue about the size, but I mean, it was no bigger than a few thousand, if that at all. So it if you can imagine, if you've ever grown up in a small town or you've, you, you know, like, yeah, I graduated with like 30 kids and you knew everyone's occupation, like you knew your friend's dad did this and he ran like the only like t-shirt printing business in the town and everybody knew, you know what I mean? Like it just, you knew what everyone did, right? And if someone's did something bad or maybe good, everyone kind of knew about it. And so it's fascinating when we read this because Jesus goes back to this town and he had taught all these things and a lot of people just kind of like were stuck, right? He left across the the Sea of Galilee, and he comes back, and I imagine that, and we read this, it, it appears as though everyone's just flocking him again, you know, it's, um, it would be crazy to think about as the disciples, you're going on this mission, right, and you feel like you're almost like Lord of the Rings, like you have this long mission ahead of you, you get going, it gets really hard, and then you like turn around, and you're like, well, that's weird, like that's not what I thought was going to happen, I thought it was just going to be us and Jesus taking on the world, you know, and then they turn around, and they come back to this city that they were just at, and it's, it's, it's apparent that these people did not necessarily weave, and that before they know it, he's being swarmed again. In fact, um, one of the cool things about this story and the book of Matthew is that there are four gospel accounts of Jesus, four different people telling the story for different, the different people, different purposes. And Matthew here, in this focus, has a very different focus than Mark and Luke, who tell this story. In fact, I will show you, you can just tell by the sheer size of how much content is put in this. You don't have to read this. This is a lot, but the top one is Matthew's depiction of what's happening. We just read it. Mark and Luke are below. If you look, they include a lot more details in this story. In fact, um, if you just read Matthew, he doesn't say anything about the, you're probably wondering, wait, is this the story where they lower the guy through the ceiling? And you're like, yes. Matthew doesn't say anything about that because Matthew doesn't seem to care. (laughs) He has a different priority. Uh, but so I'm using this, um, and you can put that away now so we're not trying to read that whole thing for two hours, but the, uh, we're trying to like, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to use Mark and Luke in a way that we understand, okay, Matthew's intent is this. He's writing to Jewish people. He's trying to show um, Jesus' authority. That's been his focus, right? He just had authority over nature, which was just mind-blowing to everyone because it was one thing for someone to get better, to be healed from something. Even magicians could do weird stuff, right? If you remember the, the plagues, right? You remember whenever um, the, um, Pharaoh would have his own magicians do some of those tricks that would make it appear like anybody was capable of doing this. Well, eventually got to the point where the magicians were like, I don't know if we can do this anymore. This is pretty crazy, you know? Well, it's the same way with Jesus. Once he calms the storm, I think for the disciples, you know, they ask, who is this man? This is not a man. This is something much greater. Because all we know is Yahweh, God, our God, who messes with nature. And then he casts out these demons. And they realize, man, even spiritual powers cannot be stopped by this man. And so then he goes back, and people are crowding this house. And that's where I'm I'm pulling from Mark and Luke a little bit. And there's just people surrounding it. In fact, um, these houses back then were not very big, right? This wasn't like Hilliard or Gehanna or New Albany. Everybody kind of has a nice little three-bedroom, two-bath home, a couple stories, like they were just kind of these like mud, uh, square kind of looking houses. And uh, in this instance, he is so packed that people are crowding in the house. People are crowding outside the house, probably listening through a window, or maybe people are like relaying what's, what he's saying, right? And, and so you start to think about that, right? Like imagine if somebody just had these words of life 
right now that you just were like obsessed with? Like, I don't know, your favorite author, your favorite, maybe it's your favorite actor or something, and they're in this small bar or restaurant, and you're like, I just need to go see this person. And there's just hundreds of people surrounding this bar. It's ridiculous. It makes sense as to why Jesus goes out into the hills to speak then, because there's thousands of people listening to him, and and they clearly can't all fit in this house. So there, there, there's people everywhere, right? I'm sure there's like priorities. And um, if you've ever been to a concert, whoever's there first sometimes gets the best seat. And so it had already filled up. There's no way to get in there. And so these four, probably four, several guys get this idea that we're just, <laughs> I don't know, these are the kind of guys that like on Black Friday, like just bolt through the lines and grab the $100 TVs. You know what I mean? Like just, you're almost like, that's not okay. But you're like, I'm impressed that you're that dedicated. For a hundred dollar TV, like you, you know, ran over people, or like, you know, and nowadays they do like tickets, so that you can't do that. But these these guys are clearly dedicated, okay? And so they climb on top of this house, um, which most likely would be like one of the disciples' houses, which is very unfortunate. And they just start ripping the roof, like just destroying it. I mean, it's it's not like a, it's not like there's like this little, you know, like in a um, a school bus where you have like the little emergency exit and you just pop open the thing and you can just climb. I mean, they're literally like pulling off the clay tiles on the ceiling. And I could only imagine being in the house and being like, what is happening? Because you read it and it just seems so fast, right? It's like, oh, then they just lowered them down. Everyone's like, wow. You know, it probably took a while, like, I don't know how long it took them to destroy a roof, but if you just decided you want to come to my house through my roof, it would take you quite a bit of time. And so these guys go up on this roof, and there's got to be people outside the house just like, what are those guys doing, you know? Or they're like, darn it, why didn't we think of that? And, yeah, I'd like to hear the next pair where another people, they just keep dropping people through the ceiling. But, uh, but anyways, they, they drop them through the ceiling, right? And um, clearly Jesus is not seem to be mad. We don't get to hear about the homeowner, so I don't know what happened after that. But Matthew doesn't tell us any of that, which if you're reading, I'd kind of be like, Matthew, learn how to tell a good story, dude. Like, those seem like pretty important details, right? I mean, that's like what makes this so crazy, right? And, and Matthew just says in verse 2, he says, um, he says, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. You know, and Mark it says there was four of them, and when they were there, there were so many people in the crowds, they had to remove the roof, and after they tore it out, they lowered the paralytic, the, uh, the stretcher that the paralytic was lying on, and um, and so when we read this, what, what our lens needs to be focused towards, I've, I've talked about this several times, but Matthew's giving Jesus this 360-degree this view. So when we read this, we're going to see all these different beautiful components of Jesus and who he is. And, and there's different themes that Matthew uses through teachings, because this is how the Jewish people learned, right? They, heard, they received teachings, they saw it lived out by their rabbis, and that created greater weight in them understanding it. In the same way, it's, all right, Matthew's clearly hitting a theme here on authority. He just talked about Jesus has authority over nature, has authority over over um, the demonic oppression, the spiritual oppression of people's lives. And now he's bringing it to front, and he's challenging it with what those people had assumed of authority. Because who is there at the scene that we probably wouldn't like? It is the experts in the law, or your, your translation might say Pharisees or something else. At this time, there's actually kind of three different experts in the law groups. But there's experts in the law here, and... Um, these are the kind of guys who you just don't feel good around if you're a normal Jew. It's kind of like, I don't know if you're like this, um, and this is probably because I'm a challenger. I don't like love authority. Um, one time I was in, this is a great just story of me not liking authority, but 
We were on vacation, and they put the red flag up. You couldn't go out in the water because the waves were too choppy. And I'm just like, I swam in high school. Like, I'm fine. Or middle school and high school. Like, I'm clearly fine. And so I, like, try to go out there, and they're like, you can't go out there. And I'm like, well, that guy's out there. And they're like, well, that guy's a local, and he's on a surfboard. You have to have a surfboard. So then I go and find a random guy who has a surfboard, and I ask if I can borrow it. And I go out, and I'm the only other person out on the ocean. That is what I think of authority. <laughs> and so, like, when, this sounds crazy, but, like, I, I don't, like, if... If there were certain people that were much higher up around me, it makes me nervous. Like, maybe you've had your boss, like, look over your shoulder. I'd probably do this to you guys, so I'm sorry. But where, like, they're looking over your shoulder when you're working, and you're almost just like, can you just not? You're stressing me out just being here. And I imagine that this was kind of the tension, right? Jesus is talking, and a lot of people want to hear what he had to say, but they know they're, like, they're Pharisee, priests. I mean, it's a small town, right? It's the same reason why if you're in a small town, like, I imagine that, like, you would not invite your pastor to a party where you're going to do some bad things, right? <laughs> you don't want them there. And, and they want to hear Jesus' words, but they're like, these guys are here too. And so this is the challenge. This is the tension that Jesus is bringing up. And that's why this passage is not about the healing per se. It's about the reality of the healing in light of the world that they're living in, the, the tension, the culture that they face. And so we, we kind of set this scene, right? These guys are dedicated, and they drop this man through the ceiling. And in verse, the end of verse 2, it says, When Jesus saw... Their faith, plural, not his, their faith. He said to the paralytic, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is fascinating because it's clear here and even in the other stories that, that Jesus is, is just remarkably just awestruck by their faith. Now, this is kind of a wild understanding because for a lot of us, like we, we, we're, we're Westerners, we think very individualistically, like we, it's our faith, it's our salvation, it's our like, I just got to be me and Jesus, you know? And then church is, like, important, but it's not like that. You know, I, I can be fine without it, right? And that's kind of the way that we live. Even though we might not say we believe that, we live as though that's the reality, right? And these people are not like that at all. This guy has apparently four friends and, and himself are dedicated to seeing what Jesus will do in his life. And Jesus admires that. Now, what's unique about this is, like I said, small town, Jesus says a few chapters earlier to a Gentile, to a Roman centurion, who at this time would be living in a much better house. He's kind of controlling the city, breaks people's kneecaps so they don't pay taxes, right? Not very well liked. But it says in another story that he was respected by the Jewish people. Jesus says, this man clearly has more faith than anyone I've seen in Israel, any Jew, right? And the reason he says that is because the centurion understood Jesus' power and his authority, and so when we think about that, we think about this. Jesus' faith, he, he sees their faith and he's, he's like, you know, it's remarkable. is because he knows that they understand, like, the weight in what he's capable of doing. And what, what I, I think there's two things that we can pull from this, just this, just this first. It's significant. The first one is that faith can actually be seen in action. So um, the Greek word pistis, which is, like, faith, it, it's, it's a verb. And a lot of times we forget that, Right? We tell people to just have faith. We, we talk about it like it's a noun, right? Like it's this subjective feeling we have, right? But they would almost laugh at you in this culture. Faith, like what do you mean? Faith, faith is seen in action. That's why Jesus uses tons of analogies about fruit and being able to see it and things that are tangible. And so in, in this essence, and, and I'd say in the biblical narrative, faith has so many pieces to it. It's the same reason why Jesus said, or in the, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, they say, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? Those, it's not just your heart, which we would think sometimes is faith. Faith is just in your heart, but it's also in your soul and your mind, which means in your thoughts, it's in your mind, it's in your, your beliefs, but it's also in your strength. 
in your hands, in your action, in the way that you live your life. And so here, Jesus is, is loving and respecting their faith put into action. And I think about that because a lot of times, like, you know, we live in this culture where we don't feel something, we don't want to do it, or um, we, 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 we gauge our spiritual maturity based upon how we're feeling, right? Um, and then, but then sometimes we do that, and then the other time we jump over here and we're like, it, our faith is only on what we do, right? Have you ever been caught in that? It's like a never-ending... Um, what are those called? Seesaw? I don't know. But it's, it's just never ending. You're never like you're never you're never at equilibrium. You're never balanced. And there, but there is this balance to it. But these people don't even like think like that, right? Like they're not saying, "Oh, my heart's not in it. Not going to go to synagogue today." Like that was not how it was. But then they also saw the Pharisees who created a secondary set of laws around the original laws because they were so concerned with the actions of people. So Jesus here is clearly like nodding his hat towards. Hey, faith is action. It's actually things that you do. That's important. You can't just say you one thing and not do it. Because this is what Jesus is doing in the next three chapters. is literally just all these actions, all these things that he said he would do and that he would bring into reality. And then the second piece we see, so the first one, that faith is an action. The second piece is that faith in community has great power. Faith in community has great power. We don't realize the impact sometimes that people around us have on our lives. Sometimes when I read, like, I don't do this a ton, but I'll just get kind of bored. I'll read, like, some kind of secular sociologist or psychologist, and they, they, they talk a lot about how humans are animals, right? They use this kind of animalistic mentality and how we're tribal and we're groupish. And, you know, I, I read it, and I'm like, yeah, I don't necessarily buy that. But, but what I do see in the Bible is that, is in most of the Old Testament, is there's this constant infiltration of these different people groups into the Israelites, and they're tarnishing their way of life. They're affecting the way they see God. They're bringing up new idols, right? I mean, it's, it's bad. The Canaanites were just terrible people, sacrificed kids, sacrificed people. I mean, it was terrible. And they infiltrated and, and changed the Israelites, and God hated that, right? And he was like, drive them out. Get them out of here. They're corrupting who you are. And I think that we can't forget that it's the same way in good, right? The people that we're around, the people we decide to be with, are, have power, good or bad, in our lives, right? And if you read it, Jesus has an incredible balance. He's the Son of God. He could be around the worst people all the time, but he isn't. Think about it. He spends a lot of time with the sinners, the social outcasts. He spends a lot of time with the smart experts in the law. But he also leaves them a lot and hangs out with his disciples. He also spends a ton of time with just him and his father in prayer. And so he understands the weight of, of, of power in our lives with community. And so I, I just think when we read this, just don't forget that this man on the stretcher clearly had faith that Jesus could heal him. But he couldn't. He literally couldn't get there without it, without these guys carrying him. And I think about in our church, like, what would it be like for there to be people in our lives where we're just, like, really down, and sometimes you just got to pick that person up, and you just got to take them wherever they got to go. Sometimes you can, like, do the classic under their arm, and, like, you walk together down the finish line, and it's really cute, but sometimes you just got to pick them up and be like, we're going here, because this is, like, I love you, and this is important, and you need this, you know? And at the end of the day, they look back and are thankful for those friends. And so the people that say, we can't do it alone, or, like, I just... This is a really common kind of plague in the American church is that we, like, I love Jesus, I don't love his people. You know, that's a really common phrase. Maybe you've heard that. In fact, Jimmy kind of had expressed some of that, like, in his own life. And, and, and I would say, sure, I mean, you have a perfect person, then you have a bunch of flawed people. I think it's a pretty easy, like, pretty easy comparison here, right? But 
Jesus knows that. He's aware of that. He knows people's hearts. And he says, yeah, I don't, I, you still got to pursue them, right? Like, the second half of the New Testament is all about us, when we follow Jesus, choosing to love and be around other people who are also broken, who are also sinners, who are also struggling. And so it's funny, people walk into church wanting grace, but they forget that those people actually, the church need grace as well. And so community in this essence, it has power, but until we're willing to step into it in light of following Jesus, I think we just miss so much. We don't see the beauty of it. And I, I, I've seen this in just churches that I've been at or I've been a part of is you have people who like one person could say, oh, this is the greatest church I've ever been to. This is like the most loving people I've ever seen in my life. And the, five minutes later, you have someone else who's like, yeah, they just were like super cold, really mature, really clicky. They just like didn't, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just didn't like feel like I was loved here. I just feel like community wasn't very good. Two different people, same, like, same amount, you know, whatever. How, what's going on here, right? And trust me, I've seen this at almost every church. Like, it just is, there's just always this, this feeling, right? And I think, like, when you get down to the symptoms of this, a lot of it really has to deal with what are, what are, we, what are, we, what are we doing in light of how we follow Jesus and what he says about community? And, and I feel like in this instance, you have guys who, we, you know, we don't hear much about them. Like, it's a very very small piece of the story. But what he's showing us is that whether you realize it or not, the people that are around you, that love you, that are for you, have immense power. And a lot of times you won't even realize how important it is until the end of this story when, I'm giving you a spoiler, but the paralytic gets healed and his sins are forgiven. And he probably thinks, wow, thank God, right? Thank Jesus. But he's also like, these guys just like went into, they just tore the roof off of a house for me, you know? And from now on, I, I, have a, I have a strong assumption that he's going to, like, really, he's just going to love community after that, right? After that you've, they've torn a roof off a house for you and you've been healed, right? And so a lot of you maybe haven't experienced that. You haven't had friends who maybe have torn the roof off a house for you, right? But I'd say that in light of that, maybe that you need to be the person who tears the roof off the house for someone. Because if you just want to be the paralytic, I, I, who, do you, who do you think, if you read this story, who do you think's faith was really encouraged in this story? Not just the paralytic. I'd say his four buddies were like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that worked. Right? I cannot believe that worked. I mean, sure, we owe a lot of money to whoever owns his house, but I cannot believe that worked, right? And so maybe you're like, you're just like mad, right? You're just not feeling God. You're just not, like, you're just not happy in, in wherever you're at, right? And, and you, you pin all these things on it, right? All these people and all that. Maybe your faith will be strengthened not through people loving you, but through you loving people. And so I just, I, we can't miss that little part in this because I think, I just cannot imagine, I mean, I am a challenger. I, I like I said, authority is not a fun word for me. I don't know if I'd tear someone's house open. I just don't even think I would. So these guys clearly were just like, I don't know, they must just really, really were psyched up when they got there. But, so Jesus says to him a really unique phrase. He says, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. In fact, other translations almost say like little boy is essentially like, child, right? This man's not a child. He's a man, grown man. And so why is Jesus saying that? Why is he saying, have courage, don't be afraid, little boy? And it's, it's clear that this is, this is what we, this is the, that we miss reading the Bible and not understanding first century culture. It was a common misunderstanding. We've talked about this several weeks ago, that if you had a physical illness, you had either done something wrong or your family had done something wrong. So if you were born with like you were a leper or you were born with a condition or whatever, right? Everybody is asking the question, what did you do? Or what did your parents do or your family do? 
and you're cursed. And there's not really a lot of way out of that. It's just kind of the way it is. And I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like, I'm sure all of us insecure middle schoolers were like, I just feel cursed. Why do people not like me, you know? That's what it felt like your entire, this guy's entire life, right? And it was never going to get any better. You didn't grow out. Puberty did not help him, okay? And so the fact that Jesus says that, it, I just think, like, I mean, he knows his heart. I just think he, he immediately is just like, hey, the, the lies that you believe, just forget them, Right? Like, come on, child, your, your sins are forgiven, and we don't even see a healing yet. So this is like his priority here. I just think he calms this anxious heart. I mean, I couldn't imagine being the paralytic. You're, 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 you know, you're an outcast. You have generational sin. People don't want to be around you. You probably bring bad luck and all that, right? And then they lower you into this house surrounded by all these people, right? Even worse, right? And you're just laying there in front of all these people. And I can imagine you're a little anxious, right, if you're this guy in the stretcher. Because this could be the most embarrassing moment on top of the already continual shame that you believe that people have told you about you. And for the Jewish person, there was no separation of, like I said, the physical and the spiritual realm. They were, they were married. So it's, it's obvious that not only do they think this guy's physically, whatever, he's, he can't walk, but also like he's not really probably going to be saved by God. Like he's, He has problems. And so Jesus here immediately says, your sins are forgiven, right? And... Uh, this is, now, this is wild because when he says this, everyone has to be going, like, what is happening? And I say this because if, if you look on the screen in John 9, there's another story that confirms this bias that everyone has towards this guy. It says, now, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. So a little bit different, blind man. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? And what does Jesus say? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So obviously, um, this is funny, but if you fact check the Old Testament, God was pretty clear about that this was not what happens. Like if you have, a pro, if you have an ailment, it doesn't mean you just sinned and, and you were cursed. In fact, if you read the book of Job, like the first chapters, like Job was a great standing man before God, had no like blemish and then, or whatever, and then just his life is terrible. Like they must have forgot that massive story, right? Where, oh wait, they're arguing for like 40 chapters about what Job must have done to God for God to do this to him. And then God shows up and he's like, will you just shut up, all of you? Like, do you move the stars and clouds? And they're like, no. And he's like, okay, well then let it go. <laughs> Basically, it's Job. You're welcome. But I just saved you a lot of reading. But it, they, had this, they had this book. Job is like a really old book. I mean, they had it. And they just don't care, right? We just, we don't care sometimes. We just like, eh, I don't care about that. I don't want that to affect my life, right? It's easier to just look at someone like that and just ostracize them. Because the, the reality of them coming into your life changes a lot of things. And so for them, like I said, you can feel, can you feel the weight now a little bit of this guy? Like, can you feel it? And, and I, I think about this, like, I'm sure there was, there was this frustration with him of, man, God must not really love me. Like, I'm not getting better. People don't love me. I'm not welcome at the synagogue. Like, I'm the small town paralytic, right? Like, clearly there's something that, you start to believe it, right? Like, maybe I did do something. Maybe my parents are lying to me. Maybe they did something wrong, right? And I don't know about you, but I think there's lots of people here, people around us, that just believe this lie. Like, there is something, I'm just being punished because I deserve it, because I just, like, I just did something, and, and like, like, even in the song, like, we treat God, I mean, he, um, I forget the exact lyric, but, like, he is seeing us unblemished. He's not He's not far against us, mad at us, like, oh, you're just the worst, right? And, and, but I think this man is believing it. It's exactly why Jesus says, hey, just relax, child. 
I think about, you know, I've actually felt this. You know, it's, it's this weird subculture truth that we wrestle with where the, the classic question is, why does God let bad things, you know, happen to good people, right? That's like the classic question. But I think even just more practically for us, we just ask, like, the more simple question of, like, God, why did you let this happen? Or why did you not do this? I really prayed for this. I really wanted this. Maybe you've actually had something in your life that you've been dealing with for your whole life, right? Whether it's a family member or it's a loss or it's like a physical condition, right? I, um, when I was younger, I was diagnosed with like mild Tourette's. Like I have tics that I can't control that change and I've had it my whole life. And my doctor at one point said, well, if you just don't eat really anything like sugar or anything, then it'll be fine. And I'm like, well, that's a, I remember when I was little, like we went to this doctor and he's like, yeah, you just basically have to throw out everything in your pantry and eat like these really weird things. And at the time, we're like, I don't know. And, but, I mean, I've asked God plenty of times. I remember being young and there being a healing service. And they'd be like, you come up here and you pray for healing. And I was like, God's not going to heal me. Like, I've had it this long. There's clearly something he wants to teach. Like, I felt like he's punishing me. Or maybe even now you think the mature Christians look at it like, oh, well, like, God's just giving me this thorn so I'll be stronger, right? Like, we have all these different perspectives on sickness and healing and, and why certain people get healed and why certain people don't, or they think, oh, that happened to them, well, they probably deserved it. Like, maybe they were unfaithful in this area, so God's punishing them in this area. And, and like, I mean, are we that different, right? Like, you see someone who is in a lot of credit card debt. Do you not judge them? You see somebody who, like, keeps getting sick or, like, is not, like, gets in car accidents. You not judge their driving. Do you not? I mean, like, we do this exact same thing. Oh, they're surely, like, it's their fault. There's something that they did. And, 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 and I think that this pressure that, that they feel, we, 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 we go to the Bible, and just like Job, we open it, and we want the Bible to tell us the problem of evil, and we want it to fix. We want it to say, why did this happen? How do I reconcile it in my life? And like I said, it can be, you can have your own, like, whatever area of that you're struggling with, right? And the Bible doesn't care. And I hate to say that like in a, in a mean way. The Bible is not about why evil happened. The Bible is what it's going to do about it. And in this instance, if the paralytic and his homies were, were like, this is just the way it is, right? And, the, and then they, they believe everyone's lie of why he had this. It doesn't matter because Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, your sins and you're healed, both. Let's just be done with it. Right? This is what the kingdom looks like. And, and it just it throws out this whole struggle. Now, is it, now, do we struggle with it still? Yes. But God is winning, and he is redeeming humanity. And, and the Bible is not this sto- storybook that we open that tells us about evil because it's not concerned because it knows it's going to win. And I think when we read it in that way, we read this story, we realize that the culture, the people around him were, were, were spewing this lie and, and believing this thing. It was spiritual oppression just based upon the people around him. And we see just absolute freedom here. And now what he says is your sins are forgiven. And, and we realize, okay, Jesus' priority here is the sins. But when you read um, the second half of that John passage that I read, where basically they're like, who, who sinned? His, his himself, his parents, Jesus says, neither of them sinned. Basically, it doesn't matter. Then, he, then Jesus says in the rest of that verse, he says, he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. And, and I, I mean, I've read this, and I don't know about you. It's not like, um, I don't read it and I'm like, oh, wow, that's so great. Like, I'm like, that guy was blind for most of his life. That's, like, terrible, right? You read Job. You're like, why did God have to, like, you know, that, that, that book could have not been written had God not, like, been like, okay, go ahead, like, do all these things, right? I mean, you read it. You get a little bit frustrated, right? It's hard to reconcile. 
And Jesus kind of says the same thing here. Like, neither his parents, neither him. And they're like, okay, well then what's up with that? And he's like, look, it's about God's glory being done. That is the priority. You can judge people all you want. You can, you can make all these assumptions. But at the end of the day, Jesus says to this paralytic, like, little boy, the lie you believed is gone. And your sins are forgiven. And so at this time, this is where it gets kind of crazy. All these people are like, oh my gosh. And you read this in verse 3. What is their reaction? <laughs> then some of the experts in the law said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, which would not be good. And, um, and he's blaspheming because, I'm going to give you a really short version because I'm running, I'm running along here, but there, when you sinned, right, when, when this man had sinned or whoever had sinned, right, in order for this to be atoned, to be removed from his record, his spiritual record, he would have to take the hike down to Jerusalem several miles. He would have to go in to the temple portico. He'd have to exchange money for a sacrifice, or he'd have to maybe have his own homegrown lamb. And he's got to go up to this line with all these other people who have been sinners. He's got to wait in line at the, the gate, this gold, this gold bronze gate at the Holy of Holies. He'd have to go up to this priest. He'd have to tell him what he did wrong. And then the priest would literally just kill the lamb, right? So its throat, drip the blood into this pan, and they would take the pan in, and, and, and there would be like an offering, a poor offering. And then they would say, your sins are forgiven. And you, you like, I mean, that is, in, that is an arduous process. Can you imagine if like daily we had to like hike 20 miles, go buy an expensive thing that we probably couldn't afford, stand in front of a bunch of other people that like we know have problems, that now we're being seen as having problems. And then you, gotta, you know that this thing you did caused death for something, Right? I mean, it's, it's so cool. You're watching it. I mean, you did that, basically. This is what, that's, that's the spiritual ramification of it. And here, Jesus is just saying, your sins are healed. Like, your sins are forgiven. And the, the priests are mad because, like, they're out of a job, potentially. They're like, wait, what? And then everyone else is like, are you kidding me? I mean, I couldn't even imagine, like, if you put yourself in those shoes, how it would feel. And so I want to I close with this idea because I think this is what Jesus is getting at in this story, is that Jesus is focusing on his authority of becoming uh, what we call the walking temple. That this temple that they had fixated on, that they had atoned from their sins, he removes that, and he says, I am that. And anywhere I go, I have the power to forgive sins. And it's, it's provocative. It's, these people are like, this is crazy. I mean, and, and so I think the best way to describe it is, and the feeling that we get is, um, if you've ever heard of Brand Gene, um, his brother, Botham, was, was shot. This was probably several months ago, maybe a year ago, and it hit news. And what hit news, actually probably more so, was his apology to his brother's killer. He was shot by an off-duty uh, police officer, and uh, I'm reading part of an article. It says, as people responded to Brant Jean's selfless act of compassion, reactions in the courtroom and beyond were also mixed with anger over the 10-year prison sentence for Geiger, that was the woman who had shot him, who could be released just after five years. She had been facing up to 99 years in prison. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, if you listen to his response, I mean, it is just like, it's like the Holy Spirit just in a video. You're like, how is this guy able to do this? You know, like just, it's, it makes you weep. And, but, but you're also like, you feel this tension. People are mad about it because they're almost like, this feels cheap. Like, she deserves more, right? This is how these people are probably, like, this is what's going on. It's like, this is cheapening our life, right? Like, this is not okay. We've, we had to go down there and do this. This is our life. This is our way of living. And Jesus is basically just like, nope, I, I call the shots now. And so his authority 
actually upsets probably everyone around him. Now, some of the poor people are probably like, yes, wow, this is crazy. I don't have to go to Jerusalem and buy lambs anymore because I can't afford them. But And how freeing it would be. But his authority causes a tense rift. And, and this, this portrait we get of Jesus, and this is what I, I think I want to close with, is just that we have to realize that Jesus has authority. And authority is not a fun word for me. No, for many of you, you've experienced the bad side of authority. You've, you've experienced abuse, manipulation, right? All these type of things because we're sinners. But Jesus' authority is necessary. And it's necessary because in his authority, we have confidence in who he is and what he came to do. And so he says to them, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? And so he says, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. And he stood up and he went home. Now, here we go. This is, this is what I'm talking about. When, what's the crowd's response in verse 8? When the crowd saw this, they were afraid and they honored God who had given such authority to men. They are fearful. That's their first response, right? Because they're like, oh my gosh. Authority is terrifying sometimes, right? And they're like, this guy, he's a walking temple, I guess. Because like, the whole point he healed was to prove that he could, he could heal sins. If you just went around saying, like, I can heal your sins, you'd all be like, Trey, you're crazy. But if I was like, I can heal your sins, watch me pick up this car, you'd be like, oh, maybe he can, right? This guy left up a car. That's what he's doing here. He's like, I can do both. I mean, at the end of the day, which one's easier to see? And so he's like, I'll heal you too. And boom, he walks up. And they're like, oh, wow, he is who he says he is. And they're, they're terrified because the, the reality of this in their life, the implications are insane. But then that moment of, of authority and feeling tense and feeling nervous and anxious about it actually moves into honor and worship. And that's, I think, what authority for us in Jesus should be is at first we're like, oh, man, that is like, I, that's tough. I've experienced authority. I don't like it. But when we start to think about this is actually what we need, we worship and we honor God in light of it. And this conversation, this conversion of the meaning and reality of authority frees them and changes their life. And so I just, I want to close with just, I think that these words of comfort, Jesus running headfirst into sin and, 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 and first casting out the lie over that man and then freeing him of his sins is how Jesus is, re- responds to us. And so I want to invite the band up as we as we take some time to process. But in, um, in light of that, we offer the, uh, the Lord's Supper bread and cup every Sunday. And so this, I think today is fitting as a reminder that um, Jesus has authority over death and over sins. And that the sins that we, that cause death, right? For them, they had to watch something be slain. For us, um, we, we sometimes forget the reality of it. But that he, he did that for us, and that he did it willingly, and he did it with authority. And so the juice and the bread remind us of that. Um, but we also, if you would like to just take some time to process or reflect, that would be awesome as well. And then lastly, we always have prayer people in the back who would just love to pray for you and, um, and just care for you in whatever way. So we're going to give you some time to do that, and uh, you can partake in that. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.